season three, Manana. Season three, Manana. Someone admits it's season three, Manana. Jeff and Scott and Mrs. C. With Blanche and John, the crew, a new movie. It's so much fun that you'll have to pee. It's gonna cure your apathy and ennui. It's the Slumgullion. Still booking ghosts on the Slumgullion. You're not getting ghosts on the Slumgullion. And welcome to the Slumgullion, America's only podcast. Joining us today is most of the new movie crew, Blanche Ramirez, John Zura. That's it. Other, <laughs> other, Hello, wait a minute. It's the, Scott Clevenger's there, too. Yeah, well, I'm not really part and of it. Jeff Holland. No, two out of three, you know. As they they're not, it's not a big crew to begin with. <laughs> and, we, and we've had some staff cuts. So <laughs> we're sorry about that. Anyway, I am Scott. With me, as always, is my partner, Kit Fisto. Welcome, Kit. Welcome. Today, we are going to be talking about Joker, as long as we can stand it. <laughs> Joker, Joker, Joker. Oh, don't you dare. No. Oh, my God. What a flashback. <laughs> oh god suddenly it's three o'clock in the afternoon and there's nothing on it's like joker's wild or highway patrol at, the, at this point i think i'd rather watch joker's wild than joker oh <laughs> all right well we will get into that <laughs> first before we get into the movie let's answer the biggest question that seems to be on everybody's lips are those steps the joker trudges up and dances down the same iconic set of stairs at Anderson Avenue and West 167th Street in the Bronx that we all made a hushed and reverent pilgrimage to visit on our first trip to New York. And the answer is yes. Uh, good eye. I, I, I guess the message of the movie, really the subtextual message I'm getting is that as miserable as Arthur's life was, at least he lived within easy walking distance of Yankee Stadium. <laughs> I mean, yes, he did have to wash. He did have to hand wash his his nude elderly mother. But uh, still. See, but if he was a Mets fan, that would explain his entire life. It would. (laughs) Having having been a Mets fan. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Depression, heavy psychotropic medications. All of those things were helpful Mm -hmm. in getting through anything but uh, the 1986 season. (laughs) Before that, I was growing up. I was an Angels fan, so basically, yeah. basically, it's masochism. It's advanced. Were they in the outfield? Didn't the Mets go to the World Series in '86? Yeah, that's why that was the one good that's year right. to be a fan. Oh, that's why. Oh, okay. And the thing about Sorry. it was, my, but they, yeah, and they won. They won, yeah. And uh, well, this is this is what happened. So I was a Mets fan, and I, I just having grown up with the Angels, I knew they were never going to win. And then suddenly they get into a uh, uh, competition. And and they're actually doing well in the postseason. I can't believe it. And they go to the series. I'm thinking this this is a once in a lifetime. I'm going to I'm going to suck every ounce of juice from this experience because it will never come again. And my friend Tony, my childhood friend Tony, came out to visit me. It was right around my birthday. He was doing a nice thing for me. And we decided to go on a road trip. We saw the Next to last game at a motel in Maine. And then we came back and I saw him off to New York. And I said, okay, finally, I'm going to sit down and just watch this, the final game of the World Series, the signing game with no interruptions. And my girlfriend came over and decided to have a fight with me. <laughs> so we were having one of the worst fights we'd ever had. And it was one of those fights that's so emotionally punishing that by the end of it, you can't even raise your voice. And we both just sort of slumped into silence because there was literally nothing else to say. And then outside the window, we heard this enormous rolling wave of sound, this great cheer rising up from all the tenements around us. And she goes, oh, I guess the Mets won. Yeah. Yeah, I guess they did. Good to know. Ah, the world without DVRs. Exactly. Exactly. That's totally a scene in some play you set in 1986. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So basically, I'm qualified to understand the character in Joker. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I wanted to ask real quick before we get into the specifics of the movie itself. My recollection of New York at the end of the 70s, and admittedly, I was only there for visits, is pretty close to the way this movie depicts Gotham. And I just wanted to get John's perspective on that. Coming with the garbage strike, that that 42nd Street area that you see in the beginning where he's spinning Mm -hmm. the sign and there's all the the ripoff electronic stores and there's the porn theaters. I mean, that really felt like New York in 1979. Yeah, and actually, what is that, 34th Street, uh, even more recently than than that, you know, Mm. where they had all those electronic stores, cheap electronic stores. Right. And you get Big stores, et cetera. Yeah. And guy, guys in embarrassing costumes that you just wanted to look away from. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you would pass them and they would smell like they slept in that suit. Like, that was a, yeah. that's a very, very odoriferous taco you're wearing, sir. <laughs> hey, why you want to bad mouth tacos? I do not. I do not. But when they're made out of foam rubber and being. <laughs> Worn by a guy who I think slept in the subway the night before. Uh, all day in the summer humidity. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Because they're usually not out there spinning those signs in winter. They're always out there in the summer <laughs> trying to get the foot traffic. Yep. Anyway, so this was not a film I was expecting from the guy who directed the Hangover movies. Mm-hmm. I feel like he's maybe more depressed than I thought. Possibly because he actually at some point sat down and watched the Hangover movies thought <laughs> what am i doing with he, my life I, he's one of these guys i just read that he hates as they say call woke culture because you can't be funny anymore oh right. yeah oh i don't I'm even no get me, don't even get me started on todd phillips because i swear to god before i saw this movie i was seeing interviews with him and everything that he said i just wanted to punch him in the dick Mm. Yeah, sounds like and I didn't. I didn't do any research because I thought I saw that headline. I'm like, oh, I don't want to know. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! Oh, trust me. No, if you did, if you would have done any research, I, I I don't know if it colored my impression of the film, but I'm pretty sure it did because I walked mm-hmm. in going, the writer director of this film is a complete and total ass munch. Yay! Well, I tell you, I saw that that headline after I saw the film. And I I can tell you it did affect my opinion after the fact because coming out of the movie, I I didn't know what I felt about it, but I think I was overall on the positive side, the negative side, you know? I Mm -hmm. thought, eh, yeah, it was some, you know, I kind of, there was stuff I enjoyed, I, you know, uh, I didn't, you know, but now it's kind of like, I don't know, it's all right. Uh, that pretty much echoes the conversation Jeff and I had because I think he saw it earlier in the day and I saw it that evening and I texted him and he said, you know, what did you think? And I just said, I, I, I think I said something like, I, I'm having very complicated feelings. And complicated, I think, was just my polite way of saying, I honestly don't know if I liked it or not. Um, yeah. But like, the, uh, the thing is, after the, all the previews, I got to sit there thinking, uh, ever since Heath Ledger, people have been trying to outweird a villain, you know, outweird Heath Ledger's villain, you know. And I thought, oh no, there's going to be another one of those. And admittedly, it was weird. He was certainly weird. Um, but um, I, I will give Phoenix a kudo for the fact that I lost him in it. After a while, I did not see him at all. So good on him for that. But I sat there thinking to myself, this is a really nicely shot depressing disturbing movie you know mm-hmm. i was fascinated by how good it looked and how bad it made me feel it uh, almost looked too good because it it seemed like the visuals were going for a um kind of mean streets feel mm-hmm. a scorsese kind of aesthetic mm-hmm. i kept expecting to see you know a 35 millimeter grain uh-huh. And it's it's all digital, so there, there's it was just a, it looked a little too oddly clear and nice. Well, you know, I you say Mean Streets, and I I see what you're saying because I, I haven't seen Mean Streets, but I know what you mean because I I thought it kind of felt like Midnight Cowboy. Oh, right. 
kind of okay. the way that was shot. So I think we're on the same kind of idea. I, I loved the shot of the long subway track heading to the city. Oh. That was just so... <laughs> I just love that. I was just... I said, what, what city could they possibly be using? <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that... I'm, uh, again, I, I, I did no research because, as Jeff will say, usually I do to a fault, to a terrible, boring, overbearing fault. And I didn't this time because I really just wanted to talk about the way the movie made me feel because I was hoping to sort out those feelings. But yeah, that shot and when he's on the train and everyone's reading their newspaper, it made me think, okay, so whatever whatever Gotham is, he lives in the outer boroughs. He, he's not in, in the equivalent of Gotham's Manhattan. Right, so. right. It's funny how he looked almost normal when he was with everyone else sitting there staring at the newspaper on that train because everybody had the look of a disgruntled psychopath, mm-hmm. which that's very true. Which you get on. Welcome to New York. Yes, exactly. And <laughs> yes, and I used yes. I used to wonder about that. What is everyone so mad about? And then I realized after a time that it's just everyone's face goes into resting psycho mode, just as a way of it's a defense mechanism. It's a def- yeah, it's, it's like, a ward off every all the real crazies. Right. Don't talk to me. Don't ask me for a donation. Don't start dancing in front of me. It's like that's where he seemed most sane. He was surrounded by all the other miserable people. Another thing about the movie that was an interesting, odd choice, uh, having almost no humor in it whatsoever. I know the Joker's not actually funny, that he has a very peculiar sick sense of humor that only amuses him. But it's almost like Phillips was afraid to allow a joke on screen that landed. Well, he was because it wouldn't work because you can't make jokes in today's woke culture. Nanny, nanny, boo, boo, wah. And it's DC. That's true. That's true. They're not. I don't know. I don't know. He cracked me up. (laughs) (laughs) Now, you talked about outweirding Keith Ledger. A lot of that, I mean, the performance was very holistic. It was all, it was his voice. It was that weird gummy-lipped thing he did with his mouth. It was the scars. But he he seemed like a person, a human being, who'd gone insane and dressed up crazy. They were tr- almost, it seemed like they were trying to make this Joker almost seem inhuman. Because that first shot where you see him out of makeup and he's he's shirtless, the camera pushes in from behind and he's, I don't know, trying to, to um, stretch out a pair of clown shoes. And you see his fleshless back, his back and his muscles. Yeah. And he looked, right. he looked to me, he looked like a, like a naked spider. He almost didn't look human. No, I agree. I think they definitely, it was a very physical performance for him. And I think they, they showed him shirtless a lot. And I think he purposely on some scenes protruded his shoulders and elbows out to be angular and get the normal, less smooth, just to be other. And I think it was effective. I th- I think you're absolutely right because I, I as soon as you started saying that I th- I remembered that scene where he's he's watching TV by himself in the living room and he picks up the gun that the guy gave him and he lifts it over his head and his rib cage protrudes out. It's weird little dance and acting cool like he's in a oh hey what's your name Arthur right. oh you're a good dancer I know. And, I mean, it was so not cool. And so just everything about it from, from the, the way he was, he was having this imaginary dialogue to the bizarre way his bones stuck out of his skin. That was actually one of the few the, times I laughed in the movie, just because it was, it was so ridiculous. The thing that amazed me was having lost all that weight for this role, make, you know, making him positively skeletal, mm-hmm. right? that he had the energy to run up those steps and run a, do all that running that he did. I'm, I can only think that either they shot that at a different time or they used a stunt person. There's, there's no way you can have that kind of energy when you're that, have that much, that little muscle mass. Right. Know, we, so. Yeah, he's, he's basically looked like he, he had been living on like, hot lemon water for three months. Yeah, exactly. So I was, I just, how are you doing that? Ah. <laughs> a couple of things I did like about the movie. It was very effectively art directed. Now I hate I hated kind of what they were showing me the, the inside of an insane asylum, some city office where a, where a psychiatric social worker who doesn't really care is barely listening to to him talk. Mm-hmm. And I also like the fact that everybody smoked 
and you could almost it was just like that whole that whole city i just imagine what it smelled like because there was a garbage strike it just smelled like like overripe trash and ashtrays yeah so you just segued into something that that kind of got me uh because i found this movie to be so very meticulous right in its in its presentation the fact that when he's dancing down the stairs, right, in his full makeup and smoking that cigarette, and then he tosses it away, and then a couple of steps later, he's got a cigarette. And I'm going, oh. when did you stop to light that second cigarette? Because <laughs> we just see you dancing down the steps. And I go, ah, you know, that's, that's the one little thing you, that you couldn't really, I mean, you were so meticulous. I didn't ah. notice that. So there was, I... That that's a continuity error that got right right past me, and usually that kind of thing irritates me. So good eye. See, you're showing me, the, you know, through this conversation, how definitely my opinion was affected by what I later read because there were lots of detail points that I I did appreciate this movie. I liked how when we'd see him on the train or the bus, how he after work and he still had you know makeup on, mm-hmm. like. He he just you know wiped it off, but there was still you could still see the Joker on him. I like that kind of symbolic bullshit. You know, I like that. You know, he's still the Joker. He always was. He all you know he always was. He finally realizes it at the end of the film. I, I like that little detail. I liked um, how he we see in his journal. He writes about how people pretending to be normal, and I mean he makes this movie makes good of mental health you know people with mental mental health issues and how they can't just be people who are struggling they have to be everybody has to be healthy and happy and smiling and and as the joker i mean his his amount part of his malady was from his head trauma right Mm -hmm. is he laughs inappropriately and so he struggles to smile or to be happy because that Laughing has been a, a the the bane of his existence, you know, and so humor is bad. Although he wants to be funny, he wants to be a comedian. I don't know. It was just there was just a lot of little points and details that I I I did like and did appreciate to build this character and show how he goes from this sad, depressed, pathetic guy to become the Joker, and also how it shows how the city follows. That's the point I made with John saying, oh, I'm glad to see how they also showed how... Because one of my questions throughout with the Joker, generally speaking, in Batman is, where does he get these crazy henchmen to follow him all the time? <laughs> where yeah. do these crazy <laughs> bastards come from? And That's this it. movie actually kind of shows it. You know, they're sycophants, some of them. They follow him because they think he's started a movement, even though he didn't really. He's just kind of the beneficiary of this mob mentality that erupted over what happened and the social situation and socioeconomic climate, whatever. So I, I did like that, how they, they told me how he has a henchman. So positive right there. They didn't explain how he ends up having enough money to buy all these armaments and things, but still, yeah. That brings up something else that I found fascinating about the movie. And that's it. There were a lot of ideas struggling to come to the surface and they were struggling basically because it was a comic book movie and there were a lot of expectations about what that means and it seemed pretty clear to me that phillips wasn't interested in doing a comic book movie that he was interested in doing a movie that someone would pay for but he wanted to tell this particular story there's a couple things that really struck me one was not just his awkward behavior when he's trying to be nice or friendly or just get through his day. But the laughter is this thing that most pisses everyone around him off. That his laughing is the thing that makes everyone most confrontational. Yet his mother says, always put on a happy face. She calls him She calls him happy. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, as you say, he duly tries to get to become a comedian and, and inspire other people to laugh. Maybe just if other people are laughing, then if he laughs, it won't seem so weird. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing was, at, at the very end, when... We're not going to worry about spoilers. At the very end, when Robert De Niro's Marie Franklin gets gunned down live on camera and the Joker says, you get what you fucking deserve, basically. And 
it's echoed by the guy who shoots the Wayne family. You get what you deserve. It's like, well, they kind of did because you've got someone who is mentally ill through no fault of their own, was trying, you know, was in a hospital, was taking his medication, was dutifully going to see his therapist or his caseworker, at least. And then all that was cut. Mm -hmm. His, His medications were cut off. His therapy was cut off. And when they're all looking to Thomas Wayne in the last third of the film as a savior, well, you know, once he's mayor, he'll he'll do something. He'll take care of things. And what does he say? He says, you know, these are people who can't get their lives together. And as someone who's made something in their life, you know, I just want to say, I will help you. Look to my example. And I'm going, well, that's that's this laissez-faire bullshit that we have now. They did make Thomas Wayne kind of a dick. Oh, this movie absolutely made him out to be an unsympathetic one percenter, probably more so than any Batman related film or animated show or or comic book that I can think of. It kind of worked. And and it also this this movie did something that I haven't seen elsewhere in the DC universe. Finally, somebody gives a plausible reason for the rich and very rich looking and seemingly smart. Thomas and Martha Wayne to walk out of a movie theater and decide to take their only son, Bruce, on a shortcut to a dark place called literally Crime Alley. Mm-hmm. I mean, ri- right. rich people don't take shortcuts. Their chauffeurs take shortcuts and then wait at the <laughs> curb blocking traffic like the entitled pigs they are. And here they dart down the alley to escape a riot. Now, if Thomas Wayne were really smart, he would have done an immediate U-turn back in the theater, taken refuge in the manager's office and called the police to say, I'm rich, get me out of here. Uh, so it's probably just as well he didn't live to become mayor. Anyway, it's not a great explanation, but it's a decent explanation for something that's always seemed like a terrible plot hole. So points for that. that I think that was generally true in the film that they were, that again, it was like answering things that have been questioned, like the, why would anybody follow the Joker? Why would all these people, this army of people follow the Joker? And then uh, why was, was uh, Thomas and Martha Wayne walking through an alley, right? Why did they get shot? You know, but it usually is like a mugger, but then doesn't take anything, right. you know? And so it's like, but they did keep the pearls. Um, but it does mm-hmm. explain a lot of these things, you know, a lot of exp- give you explanations for a lot of these things. Not necessarily explain them, but give you explanations for a lot of these things. Right. And why, you know, why he was what he was. You know, an explanation as to why the Joker became a Joker. Although no, no vat, no chemicals, nothing. You know, none of that stuff. <laughs> so yeah, I, it's the first thing I said out of the movie. So no vat, no chemicals. No, and no, uh, <laughs> yeah. no Batman. I mean, there, there's a there are a lot of origin yes. stories where the Batman is in some way responsible for the Joker's creation. Right. Yeah, I I, I remember things saying to Blanche, you know, oh, so the Joker's a lot older than than Batman, but then so was Cesar Romero. So, yeah, oh, that's yeah. that's a good point. But I because I yeah. had the same thought. I thought, all right, well, if this is like 1979 or whatever, then by the time he's Batman, this is he's going to be going up against a very geriatric Joker. But yeah. I think he was playing right. younger than he is. Isn't wasn't he supposedly playing like early 30s? Was he? Yeah, because they say that he was in that institution as a little boy 30 years ago. Oh, I missed that. OK. Yes, that's why I was like, whoa, okay, so that's all right. It's the 70s. People looked older then, especially if they smoked all the time. Right. And so and <laughs> he's, yeah, he's had a hard life. You know, it's poor people don't have a good skincare regimen. <laughs> they don't moisturize. They don't moisturize. <laughs> I, do, I do have a question for the group. Now, everybody tell me, when he stood up in front of that microphone and started to laugh, did you smile? Did you begin to smile? What he was doing that in as in the stand up in the stand up. Right. Yeah. He got in front of the microphone and started to laugh. Um, I did because it made me so intensely uncomfortable. I, I had that. Yeah. You, you yeah. find yourself smiling, yeah. you know, going, yeah, uh, oh, this is like, why am I smiling at this? But yes, yeah, it's, it's a weird. sympathetic response. Exactly. No, it was. I actually liked that scene. I thought it was a good scene. I thought it was a perfect scene. And I liked his joke after that. The one that, of course, that they used as to make fun of him on the show, on De Niro's show. The, who's laughing now? Oh, who's laughing now? I thought it was so self-aware. I thought it was a perfect joke. When you're bombing, yeah, that's a that's a perfect joke to just cut through the. Yeah, I get it. I know. I'm sucking. You know who's laughing now? Not anybody. 
Well, you know, that's actually, actually, there there wasn't a vat of chemicals and there wasn't any Smilex gas, but there was involuntary smiling in the audience, in us. And that was, that was just done by, by performance. So I tell you at the end, when he goes full on Joker from where he's in that on the show through to the end with the riot, I was grinning the whole time and I couldn't figure out why. I mean, I was like. Am I gr- is it a grimace grin or am I enjoying this grin? Am I sympathetically pulling a Joker grin? What am I doing here? Right. And that's part of why I was confused as to what I felt about this film. But I was grinning like the whole time. Like the nihilist in me kind of really enjoyed it. That little tiny part of you that does agree. What the fuck is all this for? Right. Please, this is all bullshit. Why are we in you know trudging day in and day out because there's a little part i think in in uh, some of you know some of us <laughs> who who get that you just want to chuck it all you know but then the other part was like oh gosh this is insane so anyway i think i think you're absolutely right to, to me it's that it's that feeling of dread and exhilaration you get when you're standing on on the edge of a roof or mm-hmm. at a window, an open, high open window. And there was that weird fascination with death. And then there was this tension that was really well developed, I thought, in the, in the last few scenes. When you watch him prepare for the show to the point of having, the, having it on his little Betamax recorder or whatever and aping somebody's entrance and then sitting down and having the dialogue that, as, as he imagines it's going to go with the host. And he ended it twice he practiced it once at home and then once to once in the dressing room before the show. And each time he climaxed his bit by blowing his own brains out. Mm-hmm. It's like he, it's, he, mm-hmm. seemed, right. he was, he went onto the show with the intention of committing suicide, which makes perfect sense. He's, he's murdered his mother. He's, he knows there's nothing to go back to. He killed that guy in his, you know, that fellow clown in his apartment. Mm-hmm. His days are numbered. His, his minutes are numbered. And yet, you know, because it's the Joker, he's not going to kill himself. So I just have a, what's going to go wrong? What's the one thing someone's going to say to him that they really shouldn't? That changes his mind. Sorry about that. That's okay. <laughs> we are, we are, we are did nothing. You, did you get what you were waiting for? We are nothing compared to the ocean. We are not. <laughs> we, we've, yeah, it's like King Canute learned it the hard way. um but yeah no i agree i thought that was i i think john and i had uh, talked about that afterwards that evolution of where he was in his state of mind where he was the i'll show you i'll kill i'll kill myself in front of everybody where that was the ultimate thing to do and then he switched over to no i'll show you yeah the ultimate joke on everybody yeah and it seemed like i got the impression that when the the that fellow clown in his apartment and he slips the the scissors into his the pocket of his jeans that he's more afraid than he is planning to kill that i don't think he's intends to kill the guy until he says you know you're my boy and and the way he says it is this oddly intimate tone that he used the first time he said it maybe he went like did he do something to him was he like feeling him up behind the lockers or i don't know it just seemed like there was something creepy going on between the two of them um, yeah, and, and it because he didn't kill Gary the dwarf, right? But that's actually that's actually my favorite scene in the entire movie. Why? I I just I absolutely loved that entire scene. That was the one scene where I was genuinely on edge, especially when Gary's hopping for the lock, and you know, and you know he's not going to reach the lock. I'm just is he going to kill Gary? Is he going to kill? Oh, don't kill Gary! And even though we'd barely seen the character, you know, I was. Gen- genuinely worried for the guy and i actually did breathe an incredibly heavy sigh of relief and his kiss was said you can go that was like one of the few scenes where the tension genuinely got to me yeah and it ramped up when he couldn't he couldn't get the lock he couldn't reach the the chain and says arthur yes and it was it, i'm sorry i was gonna say it was another awkward moment of laughter and tension. Oh, oh yeah absolutely like you laugh absolutely. you also laugh uncomfortably because you don't want to laugh at you know uh, it's it's a woke culture laugh. It absolutely is because you're like, well, you don't want to laugh at the poor guy. Mm-hmm. 
but it's not his fault. He can't reach the damn lock. But he's, you know, it's like it's it was all of these things. This uh, insanely tense situation where like, oh no, get out, get out. You you wanted to be able to unlock the door for him, right? And and mm-hmm. the thing that that really struck me about that scene was when Arthur's squatting over the body, and then he he, you know, he hears the guy's voice, Arthur. He turns around and he says, "Could you get the lock?" And he looks up. And then his head just sort of droops, and it's like you think, or I thought he was going to just go, "Yo, oh, it's not worth it." Stab, stab, stab. Um, and he and he goes, "I'm sorry, Gary." And it's you, you realize, or it seemed clear to me, he wasn't laughing at Gary. He was la- he was uh, he was laughing at himself. Oh, I didn't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm a rude host. Yeah. 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 It's like, oh, <laughs> yeah. And it's like it weirdly made me like him right after I saw him stab a guy in the throat with scissors. So that just contributed to how I didn't know how I felt. Yes. <laughs> and it kind of makes me think that maybe Phillips didn't want us to make up our mind at any point before the very end, if then, about the character. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe I'm giving him too much credit. I, I'm going to change topic again and say, didn't this film portray the New York attitude really well? Like his boss saying, come on, just got to give back the sign. He says, no, I got jumped. Come on, for a sign? You know, doesn't make any sense. Right. He says, well, why would I have the sign? I don't know. I don't know why people do things. Yep. <laughs> That's it. The the dichotomy of like, yeah, I don't believe this, but I don't know why somebody would do something. Yeah. You know? Yeah. When I was watching it and thinking, and I could be completely wrong about this. Again, I have not watched any interviews and haven't read any interviews with Todd Phillips. So if anybody out there who has wants to correct me, feel free. We'll bring it up on the next show. But my feeling was, as I said, he did not want to make a comic book movie. And the thing that makes me believe that most strongly is that if the character was not the Joker, 75% of the movie would still work. I can put that right there. You know how Todd Phillips actually got uh, got Joaquin Phoenix into the movie? He yeah. said, we're going to make a real movie and we're just going to call it the fucking Joker. That's a quote. He, he admitted that? Yeah, absolutely. This absolutely. He, it's, he, he, that is, we'll, we'll just, we'll just call it fucking Joker. Okay, he's obviously not a comic book fan. This, this is an extrapolation of what he said. I don't remember the exact quote, but I do remember we'll slip a real movie in. We'll just call it fucking Joker. So you know what I think? I think, Scott, you said Mean Streets. I, I said Midnight Cowboy, but now I think it's Taxi Driver, especially because De Niro's in it. I think right. that's what he was going for. I, I think you're absolutely right because, well, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that, but... Um, Taxi Driver is a very good point because uh, I think Jeff and I were talking about this at, at one point. I said Taxi Driver and The King of Comedy. Those are the two movies that – those are the two Scorsese yeah. films that Phillips obviously – Yeah, I think you, you have a point there, yeah. Because he's, he's – But given that – go ahead. I was just going to say that, that there, there's the those extended fantasy sequences with uh, Zazie Beetz where he imagines relationship with her. And then we find out that it's just him by himself. And it's odd. It's odd the moment when he realizes when he sort of like sobers and sees reality for what it is. In any other movie at that breaking point, that's where a sane character would go insane. And he has a moment of clarity sitting there in his mother's room. But it reminded me, I I have always maintained that the last scene in Taxi Driver where after having, you know, been basically caught in this house with these dead bodies, next time we see him, He's fine. His hair has grown back out. He's hanging with the other drivers, and Sybil Shepherd gets in his his uh, back of his cab, and her hair is billowing in the breeze, and they have a little reconciliation. And I thought uh, he's imagining this while he's dying. He's been shot. This is not real. That's and mm. I've always felt that. So I think mm-hmm. they were. That's one way this reminds me of of Taxi Driver, and King of Comedy is obvious. But uh, how does everybody feel about the casting of Robert De Niro? Because I think he was grossly miscast. Well, <laughs> uh, I, I was going to save that for my fascinating. Okay. <laughs> but, yeah, I, watching Robert De Niro, of all people, playing this awkwardly peppy and and, and poppy kind of uh, midnight host, mm-hmm. right? Which they are. They, they, you know, they, they're, they're not good at what they do as far as dancing and jumping around. They're just good at telling, you know, uh, questioning people and telling jokes, right? But his, his, like, his arm movements and stuff like that, I would... Yeah, that's exactly how they are. Yeah, that's they're not good at that. That they're not smooth. 
they're just good at sitting there and telling jokes. Except yeah. I didn't think he was so, good at telling jokes. His, his jokes, no, his jokes didn't sound any different than yeah. his that's, insults. That's where that's where Robert De Niro came. Yeah, in. Yeah, exactly. Through. It's like Murray <laughs> Murray Franklin. Please, you're you're yeah. you're not even Joe Franklin. You're not even Jan Murray. Oh, God. Yeah, he was he was bad. And oh. I understand. I think the King of Comedy oh. parallel made it inevitable. He was going to cast him. But I just figured, like, they could have found so many thousands of better actors. Well, I think but, he, he, again, is reflecting that 1970s New York attitude. And I think he definitely wanted that. And that's what De Niro brings. And I think, he, you know, his character. Characters is all is an asshole. He's not a good guy. He, he's he's just a guy. He's an asshole who tells one-liner jokes with to to an audience uh, with an applause light and laughter light. So it's not even real, real either. Right. So what? I I, I actually I was, thought it was fine. I, I agree with John. What I, what I was going to say was that um, you know, given all the stuff we've just been talking about and the, and his intent in making this film. The, I, I am still amazed that he bruised Cannon but never broke it for, for Batman. Oh. So, and, that, and we've been talking about how he, he actually found explanations for several of the things that we've been questioning. How did you feel about how he worked Joker into, the, into Bruce Wayne's destiny? This whole possibly the son of possibly his brother, basically, his half-brother. You know, that was the thing that made me go, oh, <laughs> Now there's a thought because Blanche said it afterwards, saying yeah, how uh, Joker never, wants, never to wants to kill Batman. Batman, never wants to kill Batman, and and uh, again that gives another reason for that because usually he just says you're just you're you're my best enemy right. is the, the reason that he gives, and yet you know you go really, but then if there's because he could possibly be his uh, his brother. Yeah. I liked how they kept it ambiguous. Yes. And that um, it seems entirely possible, having having seen and met Thomas Wayne and seen what an asshole he is, that he would have made this woman with whom he had an affair, who was emotionally fragile and easily dominated by men, as witnessed by what she stands for from her boyfriends and what they do to her son, make her sign a bunch of papers and pretend that she... I mean, that happened several times. There's several famous cases in Hollywood where somebody pretended to adopt a child that they were actually the parent of right um and he could have he could have got that paperwork together and forged all of that stuff easily yeah and she the adoption and she was in a mental hospital so Mm -hmm. i mean it's it's all it's either she could have been completely delusional or she could have been telling the truth you i think you're right the film offered explanations and alternatives to canon but it didn't insist on any of it. So you, if you didn't like it, you could ignore it. But I, I, another moment that made me feel intensely uncomfortable was when he goes out to the Wayne Manor, stately Wayne Manor, and you see Bruce in his little treehouse or his fort or whatever it is, and he slides, he slides down the, the pre-bat pole, and, and he sees Arthur's face over the wall, and then they make eye contact, and Arthur drops below view, and then he appears, and he's got a red bulbous nose on. You think... So this is what it's like to be rich. You can have uh, pedophiles delivered right to your door. And what did you guys think of Alfred? Was anyone in this film not an asshole? <laughs> <laughs> although, although, I don't know. If, 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 if I had seen, you know, like some creepy guy shove his finger in my, you know, charge his mouth. Right. Well, okay. Yeah, but then he finds out who his mother is. So now I guess I have to decide if I believe her or I believe the Wayne family story. Because he was like, oh, well, here's a, an abused, mentally ill person who is actually the, the unacknowledged son of my employer. I'm going to tell him he's nuts and drive him away. He could have been part of the cover-up, too. Now I understand why, even though Gary only had, like, two scenes, part of the reason I was so attached to him and didn't want him to get stabbed to death in Arthur's apartment was because, it really, the, the bar for being the best person in this movie was low. And I'm not, and I'm right. not, making, it dwar- <laughs> I'm not making it dwarf joke. I would say that Zazie is the best person in this film. Uh, she's the no. nicest. Well, I she's the say. nicest, but she's by far from the smartest. Because, I'm, I'm sorry, bitch lives in Gotham and she doesn't lock her front door. <laughs> she doesn't lock her door, exactly. <laughs> I know. She's the mother yeah. of a, a small child, a female child, and she doesn't lock yeah, her my, door. Please, my, my daughter's sleeping in the other room. Well, then lock the front door. Why don't you? 
I allowed it. <laughs> Thank yes, you, Scott. I, I'm glad you allowed it. I played it. Judge Wapner. I'll allow it because because uh, <laughs> it was a cool way to to reveal that they had no relationship. Yeah, right. but I knew I knew they had no relationship. I knew that was that was fantasy. I mean, I was hoping. I I was watching this going. This better be all fantasy, or I'm gonna be pissed off because this is male fantasy bullshit. Right. There's no way this would happen. Yeah. Single mom with a little girl oh. does not go out. Does not who seems to be a, a conscientious, caring mother. Although conscientious, as we know, she left the front door open. Um, does not go out with a crazy guy down the down the hall. Right. Once, once again, definite positive proof that I am a male because I did not know. <laughs> uh, I, was, I was about 90% sure. I was pretty sure it was a fantasy. But on the other hand, uh, as we know from uh, uh, Joker and Harley Quinn, uh, Joker is a chick magnet. Oh, yeah. Once he puts the suit on, you know, yeah, <laughs> that's hot. But no, not before. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Well, here's the other thing that Jeff and I briefly talked about, and I've been mulling it over, and I still feel this way. I was sort of with the movie until the very last scene. I appreciate the fact that we didn't see him kill his new psychiatrist, and I liked the fact that it was only alluded to when you see his bloody footprints walking down the hall. But the whole little Elmer Fudd chasing Bugs Bunny bit with the orderly at the very end and, and the, the end, I really expected to hear Porky Pig. Which actually they could have done because it was a Warner Brothers movie. When Jeff and I were talking, we both, I think we both agreed that it would have been much better and it would have been a much better film and it would have been better for the character to have ended with that shot of him standing on the car, surrounded by all the rioters in clown masks, just drinking in that moment. Not even say anything. I wanted a cut. I just wanted to go to black right there, and if that, I, if that had happened, I would have gone, yes, okay, I forgive everything else, that's awesome. Or even, like I told you, Scott, like if they'd have cut when he makes the smile with the blood. Yes, yes, that should have been... An incredibly disturbing shot. Yes, when he, because he had already, he'd already deformed his own face into a smile in the first shot we see, and then he did the same thing to Bruce in that very disturbing sequence, and to have him paint that... Pagliacci grin on his face with blood. I mean, that's a great origin moment. It was very powerful. That should have been the last shot. And I think that final scene was in there just so he could be laughing to himself quietly for once. And he he wasn't doing the, the forced laughter. He was actually chuckling to himself. Laughing. And she yes. says, what's so funny? And he says, I just thought of a joke. You wouldn't and get I go, it. All right. So it was just to pay off the laughter bit. And I don't think it was worth it. I don't know. What do you guys think? <laughs> I, I, I agree. What, you couldn't have made him find something humorous in, in one of those other scenes where he actually finds bliss, you know, or happiness? I, I, I agree with that. Yeah, you didn't need that. Like I told Scott, it kind of felt like Return of the King. It felt like it should have ended like five times before it actually ended. Yeah. I can forgive a movie with a weak ending if there's been a lot of strong stuff up to then, but I can't, I can't forgive a movie with like three weak endings. Just pick, just pick a weak ending. <laughs> and here, here's where, here's where I'm going to get in trouble. I actually got pissed. They showed the wings get killed. Really? Why? That actually took me a little bit, kind of took me a little bit out of the movie. Because like the whole film, I'm like, okay, this is a Joker's film. This is a Joker's film. Wayne's here. Bruce is here. Fine. But then they got like, really, do we need to see this? It's not about them. It just, it just, that just felt like, it felt like it was tapped on. Even though, even though Philip says this is a one and done and Joaquin says he's only going to play the Joker once. That scene felt like, like the producer said, we got to put this in here. We have to put this in here. I get your point. And I, I, part of me agrees with you. The, the other part of me feels partly I think it was not so much setting up a sequel or presaging the coming of Batman. I think it was cathartic for the audience to see this asshole literally get what he deserved, that, that it was symbolic of what the Joker, Joker represented and I mean, this whole eat the rich attitude and how, I mean, basically the film is about, it says, said as it is in the miserable past, it's very much about our miserable present and income inequality and rich people having too much influence in politics and nobody caring about the mentally ill until somebody dies. And then they only pretend to do it so they don't have to deal with guns. 
I, I, I get the, I, I actually get your point and I can, I can see it, but this is me being grumpy, grumpy nuts. I've seen the Waynes die how many fucking times in films? But I never wanted to cheer before. I, I just ha- found myself waiting for the pearls. <laughs> they were in there, right? They, the, the, the pearl necklace snap. Right? Uh, yep. The yes, pearls were there. Yep. yep. Thank you, Frank Miller. Oh, so like John wanting a pearl necklace. <laughs> Anyway, no, I, I also thought I think it is about Joker too. I mean, I, I think Scott, you got you make a really good point, and I also think it's still about Joker. He does. Because he does. This, this this story then it kind of implies that he creates Batman, sort which of, is a, you, instead which of the other way, you know the other ones who say the other way around that somehow Batman creates Joker. This one says you know he creates Batman, which I'm kind of attracted to because I like the idea just just as a as a childhood fan of comics. The idea that that supervillains create superheroes and not the other way around, because the other way around is this sort of navel gazing thing that they got into once they went down their own asshole too far, which is inevitable when you're cranking out 50 different titles a month. But I don't think it was extraneous. Like Joaquin Phoenix himself, the movie was fairly lean. There weren't a lot of scenes where I would have thought, "Okay, why, why are we taking this detour? I mean, everything's more or less paid off. At least that was my feeling. I wasn't bored or lost or impatient. I didn't look at my watch. I was pretty caught up in it. I will huh. say that the, the movie went tried really hard to be disturbing. And one of the things that disturbed me was when he closed himself inside, inside the refrigerator. Yes. Oh, God. Because yeah. still in the 70s, there were, there were children that, were, that died because they locked themselves in refrigerators. And yep. it was it was more personal to me because I actually did that. Oh, did you? I closed myself inside of a refrigerator. Fortunately for me, it was an old refrigerator with a, that had a latch type thing on on the outside rather than the kind of locks that they have on refrigerators after that. And I was able to kick it open because I had leverage because I was small. There's no way he could have kicked it open getting into it sideways. Right. And so it just kind of made me feel that that tension of knowing what it's like to be locked inside a refrigerator and possibly there is some alternate universe where I die. Oh my God. <laughs> oh my God. That's, that was, that, that was a nightmare. That was a recurrent nightmare I had as a child because, you know, your parents would tell you, beware. And then, you know, some little girl died and I, then I would just haunt my dreams. But you know, the interesting thing about that scene, it was how the director piled tension on top of tension because he gets in the refrigerator. I'm already freaking out. And then the phone starts ringing. And because I am old enough to remember that, get the phone, days of the landline before everything went to voicemail, just the fact that the phone was ringing just increased my attention. I thought, well, he can't. He's trapped in the refrigerator. Who's going to get the phone? <laughs> yeah, but then didn't you feel a little bit robbed when you realized that was a different, uh, you know, another scene? Oh, wait, when did he get out of the refrigerator? Yeah, I, I, that was a letdown. It was because I wanted at least because he was just suddenly he was just there. That was my point of doing things just to be disturbing. I agree with you. I think there was a bit of that in, in the film. You guys saw Ad Astra, right? Okay. Yes. Well, w- yes. without we we can get into discussion of that some other time. But Mary was uh, didn't go with me. I when I was telling her a little bit about it, and then after I told her a little about, about the Joker, she she said it feels like everybody's making these seventies kind of movies. And I thought about it and I said, actually, that's true because Ad Astra did feel like a little bit like a 70s movie in its sort of bleak version of hopefulness. You know, we're alone in the universe. We're all we've got. So, okay, well, we're either going to just die alone or we'll find some way to live together. But it struck me that like people in the 70s, the young Hollywood directors like Peter Bogdanovich, a lot of them were, were remaking movies or movie genres from the 30s. I mean, Bonnie and Clyde is basically just a Jimmy Cagney gangster movie with more blood. You know, What's Up, Doc? was Bogdanovich's effort to revive screwball comedy. It seems like a lot of these guys who are directors now in, in film class saw a lot of 70s movies. And they're, it feels like they're reaching back for those those sort of themes or that kind of maturity and i don't know if it just feels like that because any movie that's not a comic book movie now feels more serious by virtue of the fact that it just has a low cgi budget well spoiler alert sorry but ad astra's heart of darkness in space which is what apocalypse now is heart of darkness yes. in vietnam yeah right but when we went to see that 
there was this guy, grown man, who took, there was a couple of people he took, a, a couple of younger kids. One was maybe like somewhere between 7 and 12. I couldn't tell, but he was young, little boy. And at the end, the man said, wow, that wasn't what I expected at all. And I guess he expected something more adventurous. Mm -hmm. And the kid said, oh, I liked it. Really? And he said, "You really? And he said, oh, yeah. And he was. He wasn't like squirming or making noise. And I I, I remarked to John, sometimes something that makes someone think the kid really liked. I mean, wow. Okay. That's interesting feedback. (laughs) So there's still room for movies like that. Yeah. the, The kid loved it. Yeah. That's fascinating. Speaking of fascinating. If they name them correctly. Yes, right. <laughs> oh, Mars, right? Not Ad Astra. Exactly. Ugh. I thought the first time I heard someone say it, I thought, wait, they move it, They made a space movie about Ed Asner? What? Actually, it's, it's, it's Ad, what was it? Ad Neptune or something? Yeah. Ad, yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> yes. Ad Neptune. They could have, you know, they could have gone the extra mile and, well, extra billion miles and, you know, ended the whole movie at Uranus. But no, they just didn't care enough. Well, some people felt that's yeah. where it took place. <laughs> anyway, right. Yeah. Okay. So let's go on to fascinating, irritating, and whatever. Because unless anyone has any other thoughts, but they can all be folded into that. Because I'm sure whatever thoughts we have left are either fascinating or irritating. So let's start with John. The fascinating was watching De Niro try to be one of these characters, mm-hmm. right? Johnny Carson. <laughs> exactly. But the irritating for me, was when he's looking through the files of the hospital, he finds the original of the adoption application. We know Mm. it's original because it's embossed with a seal. And you go, why would there be original in the hospital record? And so I just said, really? I mean, I guess you're just trying to make it impressive that, yeah, it's real. It's a real one. It's not just a copy. But a copy would have worked in that case. I don't know why you had the art director had to go one extra one extra thing and make it an original. Unless you're going along with that, it's all fake. That it was a, a forged and it was all thrown together with all these also fake hospital. She needed to be committed for whatever reason. That would go along with that. It's a fake adoption, fake papers, and that he really is Wayne's son. We just don't know. You you go, Blanche. Yeah. <laughs> I was just going to say, well, maybe they like death certificates where they make you get like five copies, one for your insurance company, one for the social security. That's true. That's true. Where you need to have the original. You need to have a fully embossed one for everybody. Jeff? Okay. Uh, fascinating for me was definitely, this was the actor in me, just watching Joaquin Phoenix. I mean, he, he owned that part. It was just, he was amazing to watch. Basically, I said he that was. I really do hope that, um, even though it is a quote unquote combo film, even though it's not, that he does get an Oscar nomination because this this performance I really do think deserves recognition because what he did was absolutely outstanding. Um, irritating, I'm going to go on a little bit of a tear here for everything that I liked about this movie, and there were a lot of things that I liked, there were so many moments in the film where I thought, oh, this movie is so full of itself, to almost the point of pretension. I'm making a, I'm making a serious movie here about, about this and about this and about this. I'm making a serious film. And it just got on my, like, and also, this is also part of the irritating thing, I got so fucking sick of watching him dance. The dancing just got on my nerves after a while. And like 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 it posted in my one tweet review, um, I just don't think the film is as good as it thinks it is. And that got me annoyed because, like I said, when it was good, it was absolutely amazing. But the rest, I'm just going, ugh, okay, this is Todd Phillips being the asshole that he is. Okay, this needs to stop. And when I walked out of it, all I kept thinking was, and I know this is bad of me, but all I kept thinking was, wow, I wonder what this film would have been like if Scorsese had directed it instead of just producing it. Oh. I really wish this would have been directed by Scorsese instead of just produced by, but that, that's just me. Well, Scorsese himself had his little, had a little faux pas. He got a lot of grief oh, for right. talking about, for talking down comic book movies. And then they, they walked it back and says, no, no, he was just talking about the difference between high art and lowbrow art. You know, they're both valid, but they're different. Which, uh, anyway. It, it's tough when you start deciding what is and what isn't art. Yeah, because there are no gatekeepers that anyone has respect <laughs> for anymore. 
now everybody with the with the Twitter feeds a gatekeeper. Yeah. So thanks again to you guys. We got to go see La Boheme, and even though she was oh opera, well that's high art. The the staging was very was done very accessibly. It was they were trying to reach a broader audience. At least that's the impression I got. And the the director hinted that in the his interview in the in the program. I don't even know if there's there's any difference anymore worth talking about because everything is such a mashup of everything else. Everything is cross pollinated and influenced because everyone's got instantaneous access to the Metropolitan Opera on YouTube to comic books on your iPad. So. Uh, that leads into my irritating thing. I guess I had a similar reaction to Jeff. The film, it felt self-conscious. It felt like he was trying not to make a Joker movie. That's why I said 75% of the movie, until you get in the last act and th- things take on that this sort of sick momentum, it really could have gone any number of ways. And it could have just been this sad little miserable character study, which I don't know if that's a, if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I feel like it means he couldn't commit to the material that he couldn't he didn't respect the material and he was just taking it for a ride. Fascinating thing was just completely minor, but it seemed to me that because you you see him spinning that sign on 42nd Street and there's a porno theater and then there's a a regular movie theater, which is very which was very Times Square. I think the alley he gets beat up in in gets his sign stolen in the in the first scene of the film is the same alley where the Waynes get shot down at the end, which if true would be cool, but I don't know. Okay. Hey, when you book an alley, you Ex- can get them all done in a day. Get it done. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> We've only got the alley for today. <laughs> right. It's a really pop- the schedules a popular alley. Yeah. One real, real quick thing before we go to Blanche. I apologize, Blanche. I just wanted to say I did think it was kind of funny. As much as I didn't like the, the, the Wayne's getting shot scene, I did get a giggle out of the fact that they were walking out of Zorro with a gay blade. Yeah, that was... <laughs> that, that, was a, that was a cute that little... Was. I, I did like that. I did. I forgot that. You're right. It was smirky, but it was cute. <laughs> but that was smirk that Smirks works. Smirk <laughs> There's a bumper sticker, Smirk That Works. That's our new slogan. <laughs> I apologize, Blanche. Go ahead. Not a problem. I You brought up the theater. I just was saying how the, them being in an alley never bothered me before because uh, I always assume, you know, they were probably down low in the orchestra and, and Bruce says, oh, I want to go home or I don't feel well or whatever reason they leave early. So they leave out one of the side doors, which always exits into like an alley. Mm-hmm. But what this is me, California girl. But then they always exit with their coats, which, of course, they would those would have been checked in the coat room. So it doesn't make any sense. They would have exited the front. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. Yeah, I never got that that part because I don't you know who, who has a coat when you go to the you don't need a coat. Right. It's hot. Anyway, um, well, you know what? My fascinating, irritating is basically you, you, uh, Scott and Jeff already iterated. I mean, it was it was kind of like you know, as many points that I really enjoyed or thought were were good in, and there were many in this film. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, I really liked how that happened. Oh, what an interesting, you know, oh, what a nice depiction of, you know, this that or oh yeah, cutting programs. Oh yeah, this that. Lots of good stuff that I really liked, and I was so that was fascinating. How I think he was very effective, and also very effective in showing this, I guess, time period in in Gotham, and so that was impressive. But then I was irritated that I I didn't love this movie, that I didn't like it more. That at the end I was like, I don't know how I feel about this, and and I do think now that I you know take a minute to think about it is that I think my, my college me would have loved this movie. Mm. Would have totally loved it. Like, oh, he was so weird. But me, today, uh, I wished I could love this movie. I wished, it, but it just seemed to miss for me somehow, and I, I don't love it. And I think you guys bring up very good points as to possibly why that is. Why I don't have solid, positive feelings about it. <laughs> Well, I think you just crystallized something for me when we were talking about the movie taking itself too seriously and being a little too nihilistic. There was a certain point in my life where I would have found that more appealing. But I think 
that's what I was feeling, even though I wasn't articulating it, that it's an origin story for a supervillain. And those are inherently nihilistic, especially if there's no hero to deal with them. And the only way that I would have loved this movie is if the villain had been more fun. And he wasn't fun at all. He was fascinating, but he was depressing. And the Joker is a character you can make both nihilistic and fun. And there there was yep. no one to, for him to play off of. Everyone in Gotham that Arthur came across was absolutely as miserable as he was. I mean, Bruce Wayne, mm-hmm. Bruce Wayne looked like the most depressed kid ever, and his parents weren't even dead yet. <laughs> yeah. That's a very good point. Yeah, so much so that this strange guy doing really bad magic was entertaining to him. Yeah, well, at least hey, I spent all my time with my dad <laughs> and and my butler, both of whom, as you'll shortly discover, are huge assholes. I'm going to let this weird man shove his hands in my What's mouth. What's the worst that could happen? <laughs> a lifelong antipathy? Fact, I'd like to find out. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just gonna. I'm just gonna let this ride. See where it goes. Start with the mouth. You know. <laughs> well, well, it was this? It was the '70s, after all. That's... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Oh, oh I'm God. sorry. Early '80s. No, I'm sorry. That's why everybody was an asshole. It's an early '80s. Everybody was on coke. Oh, right. They'd stopped smoking pot. It was all coke at that point. There you go. Yeah, that's true. And those those Wall Street guys that uh, he shoots, uh, Bernie Getz style, on the subway, were very much like guys that I would see in bars in New York in the early 80s, except they didn't have the, um, their their suspender game was not as impressive. They, di- they didn't have the power suspenders. But other than that. Oh, a detail missed. Yeah, flinging, <laughs> flinging French fries at some poor woman. Hey, he's being nice. Yeah. yeah. But wasn't that happy to see mm-hmm. that good shot. But all right. Any final thoughts? Yeah, actually, I want to add something that was a personal fascination in this movie. When I first moved back to the East Coast, uh, I remember I would go to a movie theater and almost always I would see names that I worked with or uh, and had class with going through the credits. And I always thought that was so fascinating. Little by little, that would start to dwindle and dwindle and dwindle to the point where uh, it hasn't happened in years. And then to see this movie and Francis Conroy in it, someone who I actually had contact with, because her husband did a show with me. Uh, oh wow! The Hiding Place. Oh, oh, uh, was he in the Hiding Place? Yeah, he was. Uh, he was the uh, the older guy that was kept on coming and saying, "This is what happened to me today." You know what? That was a good show. There were three of us at the table. Yeah, that was that's her husband, and he also did a lot of carpentry work for, for James at the theater. He but, was a um, good builder. Yeah, he's a good builder. He built sets a lot. For him and Who stuff. wrote that? Who wrote so, that uh, show? The, the guy that, that, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, it was. James Dunwoody. Yeah, the, the guy from it. Yeah, I thought it was somebody who was more famous for a musical. But that was that was the thing. We got a lot of people who would walk out in the at, at the intermission because they were expecting something like Avenue Q. Ah. Oh, jeez. Right. And yeah. it was just a it was a serious play, and, and so the young kids, the young the young uh, kids who would show up who wanted something funny and you know, with puppets, I, I guess. <laughs> so that was my, my little fascination that I actually got to see her after having known her. Who who did she play? Was she the mom? Yeah, she was the mom. Uh, right. I thought I I yeah, thought I had seen her. She looked really familiar to me, and then when she spoke, her voice. Yeah, she was uh, six feet under. Oh, so right. She, okay. She's also been in several seasons of American Horror Story. Oh, has she? Right. Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, she she was like a main character in several seasons of, of American Horror Story. Yep, yep. Good for Francis. So is that? I never watched American Horror Story. Is that like? Is it actually really good? Because it just seemed like it was all about in-your-face type of trying to creep you out, but not necessarily... Short version, it de- short version, it depends on the season. There are some people who just have not liked it since the first season. I've watched... The, the only season that I have not watched is this season because they're doing an 80s slasher, which doesn't interest me at all. But apparently it's good. I'm going to watch it eventually. Um, the second season, which took place at an insane asylum in the 50s, which was very gothic horror, I loved and the third season was all about witchcraft where francis conroy plays a major part in that one was also very good and very different and it's one of the few seasons to actually have a good ending <laughs> i mean a happy ending a happy ending is what i mean it's it, it depends on your personal taste because every season has a different style and a different story okay right yeah. 
It has the same actors playing a different cast, but I mean, every year it's a different field. I like it just because it really is a horror anthology. But it definitely, it definitely has moments where it goes just for the shock. But then it also has some moments like season two is my favorite because it has one of the most emo- emotional arcs for me. I actually teared up in the final episode. Really? Jessica Lang's character's arc in season two was such a huge emotional character arc. And her what happens to her in the final episode, I actually teared up. I don't know if she won an Emmy, but I know she won a couple glo- go, um, Golden, oh, Globes. Golden Globes. Yeah, the four years that she was on it, or was it five? Yeah, the four, the four years that she was on it and she was the mainstay, even if you don't like the show, you will go away thinking that she's amazing in it. They gave, they gave her the best character arcs. I mean, they really did. She's phenomenal. <laughs> but it definitely did lose a little. I think it's, it lost a little bit once she left, like a lot of the gravitas left, if you know what I mean. She came back for one episode um, it, last year because it was a it was a kind of a mix up between season three and season one, and she she played her season one character again for like one episode. But yeah, she's been gone since season four. Boy, that's that's somebody who really did not turn out the way I thought she would because I remember John and I were just laughing at her performance in King Kong. Well, how could you not? Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I knew you would be yeah. there. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much. Not that it, it matters. It's, it wasn't a psychiatric session, but it did help me sort out my feelings. So I appreciate that. Yeah, I agree. I was happy. I was, you were like peeling back the layers of the onion going, oh, yeah, there was that. Mm-hmm. There was that. I was very interested to hear what you and John thought of this movie. That's why when, when, I, when I found out that we were going to be able to do this, I was like, great, because I really, really wanted to hear what you guys thought. And how'd that work out for you? It's actually... Made for a good discussion, I thought. Indeed. Actually, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to lie. I thought, I thought, Blanche, you liked it more than I thought you, were, you would. I, I did, uh, yeah. I See, I'm, I'm surprised at that, too. I mean, <laughs> I wasn't sure. But yeah, I think I did. I am more on the positive and as long as I don't read any more about it, I will stay there. <laughs> well, now I know not to. Yeah, ju- yeah, just just ignore everything about Todd Phillips. But you said something that I completely agree with. I wanted to love this movie. Yeah, I did. I wanted to, and it kind of pisses me off that I didn't. Yeah, if it well, if it had been more fun or it had given you anything to love, it just it didn't want to. This movie was emotionally withholding. It was like my mother. But yeah, it's got all the elements of things in it that that we should or that I should love, and it just misses. And I, uh, I don't know, something like you, something's wrong. Maybe it is the humor, maybe it's something else. I, don't I know. think humor, some yeah. humor would have put it, it, the movie in a different dimension, which maybe what he was afraid of. I don't know. Lunch, lunch, yeah. and I are both afflicted from the same thing where. Uh, depending on what we hear before we see the movie will depend on how we feel about the movie. If it's really raved about and stuff, then our expectations are high and, and they're seldom ever met. But if our expectations are low, then we get surprised by how good a movie is. And in this case, because of all the trailers, uh, again, I was had a lot of trepidation about trying to beat Heath Ledger's weirdness. Right. You know, I said, okay, that's what it's going to be, just that. You know, it's like, I'm not sure. So my expectations were low. So fortunately, I was able to like the movie law more than I thought I would. All right, that's it. Thank you very much to the new movie crew for joining us. Jeff and I will be back in two weeks or less with something else. And until later. Later. Aloha. 